Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of The Echo of the Thunder, a podcast about the history and politics of Irish republicanism. In this episode, I'm speaking with Seamus Kearney. Seamus Kearney joined the youth wing of the Provisional IRA in Belfast at just 15 years of age, eventually rising up the position of staff officer. In 1977, he was captured on active service and sentenced to 14 years imprisonment in the H-blocks, where he joined fellow Republican prisoners on the blanket protest, refusing to accept the British government's imposition of prison clothing onto many who viewed themselves as political prisoners of war. Seamus has just published his memoirs, No Greater Love, which mainly focus on his experiences during this period. You can find links to purchase the book in the show notes for this podcast and in all social media posts I make in relation to it. During his incarceration, Seamus was subjected to protracted periods of torture, sensory deprivation and spells in solitary confinement. These were experiences that were widespread among Republican prisoners during the struggle for political status, and experiences which we discuss sometimes with stark detail in this episode. It goes without saying, therefore, that this episode comes with a content warning for those who completely understandably might be upset by or want to avoid those kind of descriptions for whatever reason. So that's a heads up before you go any further on this episode. Seamus was a witness to the 1981 hunger strike, um, as well as the earlier hunger strike that preceded it. A phase of the struggle which, in which 10 Republicans died, and an event which altered not only the history of Republicanism, but the history of the Troubles themselves, as well as the broader history and politics of Britain and Ireland as a whole. During our discussion, Seamus details his comradeship and interactions with key figures in the H-Block struggle, including Bobby Sands, Brendan Hughes, Kevin Lynch, Kieran Doherty, and Thomas McElwee. And we finish by discussing Seamus' analysis of the consequences and impact of the H-Block struggle, its political ramifications, and his take on where the Irish Republican movement stands at present. Uh, Just before we begin, a small note about how I approach interviews with combatants. Uh, regardless of their background, whether it's Republican, Loyalist or British, um, I see my approach, if this is not too pretentious or lofty sounding, um, as that of a facilitator and a participant in political education and someone who's uh, providing a structure through questioning for my interviewees to tell a story about their involvement in this conflict and have their perspectives on the record um, with the purpose or the main aim being to further the future understanding of what this conflict meant to those who were involved. Um, I take an approach which for many may feel overly sociological or perhaps even detached and I absolutely acknowledge that it won't be for everyone. Um, If you're here expecting, you know, a kind of aggressive moralising about the ethics or utility of political violence, the kind that you'd find on an episode of, say, BBC Hard Talk or something of that ilk, you won't find that here. Um, I have my own political sympathies, which I've been open about in my writing and podcasting. I'm a socialist, Republican, I'm a Marxist, I'm an anti-imperialist as well. But as I say, I would apply the same approach I use in discussion with Seamus as I would if I was discussing the memoirs of a loyalist combatant, despite my very real political criticisms of loyalism, by the way. What I'm trying to extract here is an oral testimony for the historical record. I'm not comfortable condemning the use of political violence outright, especially in a context of resistance to oppression and colonialism, but I also don't seek to glorify bloodshed or political violence. There's nothing pretty and glamorous about war after all. So that's my approach with such interviews going forward, and I'm learning as I go, I'm learning on the job, so this is a labour of love, and I'm always more than happy to receive constructive criticism and any suggestions that you might have. Um, so if you want to get um, in touch with me, you can get me um, at Hanloom Lament on Twitter, um, or at danielbaker0107 at gmail.com. Until then, be sure to subscribe to the Patreon to support the show, and you can do that at patreon.com forward slash danielbaker. You can also support the show by subscribing to the Substack blog and newsletter at echoandthunder.substack.com. Uh, that's where all my writing and blog posts as well as episodes of this podcast live. And from this episode and all the episodes now on, you should be able to access them uh, from all the major podcast providers. Again, if you can't, if you're in trouble with that, give me a shout and I'll try and sort that out. Uh, so without further ado, here's myself talking to Seamus Kearney.
Seamus, the majority of your memoirs, they um they focus on your time as a provisional IRA volunteer and your incarceration in the H blocks um, and the resistance of Republicans to the removal of special category status. Um, that's obviously a series of escalating protests um, that culminates in some ways in the 1981 hunger strike. Uh, to begin with, though, I want to focus on your early life. Um, you were born in East Belfast just over a decade, I think, before the outbreak of the Troubles. Um, how would you describe your upbringing and your sort of family background in, in those years prior to the Troubles? Um, well, my father, he was from um, East Belfast, which is around uh, Bala Macarrett, uh, uh, the, the parish of St. Matthews. And uh, my mum, she was from West Belfast, and she didn't really want to go over there. But when they married, um, my dad, he was living with my, my grandfather, uh, John, at the time. So, and he was from that area. He was very much uh, ingrained in that area and that parish. He, he was what you would probably call now a community leader, mm -hmm. you know. But then you, you know, that that terminology wasn't wasn't about. So he would have been like a community leader. He was helping. He helped set up the credit union over there, and uh, he was very much involved in the church. Ran the CTS box. And, you know, he was into the white people's, he was into everything mm -hmm. uh, to do with the church and the run of the church. And, uh, and he was like, uh, so he didn't want to leave the area anyway. And so when I got married, my mum reluctantly went over there and we resided in uh, Fort Cartoon Street uh, in that area. And my, my grandfather, he was with us. I, I, I do remember him. He died in uh, late 62, early 63. Um, I actually thought it was 63, but uh, one of my cousins said he actually died in September 62. So um, uh, he was, an, he was a, a veteran from the First World War and he was a sergeant in the British Army. And uh, he was decorated as part of the Ludendorff Offensive in uh, the spring of 1917. He helped re resist that, uh, the German General Ludendorff Offensive. And uh, he was awarded the second highest honor in the British Army. And the, Vic the Victoria Cross, is the, the, the highest honor in the British Army. Well, he got the second, which is the DCM, Distinguished Conduct Medal. So, which was a big thing. And uh, he was mentioned, he was gazetted and mentioned in dispatches, etc. Um, he, he joined in August, 1914, uh, when the war broke out, the First World War. And then he, he was demobbed in April, 1919. The war ended in November, 1918. He stayed and uh, when he came back, um, he, he had joined before the Easter Rising of, of uh, April 1916. And when he came back, he wasn't really lauded, you know, because the whole country had changed. And uh, there was a war of independence, which had commenced uh, a few months earlier in January 1919. He came back in April. And uh, so to be in the British Army, he thought he was a bit of a hero, but he wasn't really. And with, with regards to Republican, uh, from a Republican's point of view, Irish Republicanism. Mm. The Ulster 36th Division, they were the UVF, the, the loyalists. They, they, they still to this day are very proud of their heritage. And why wouldn't they be? Um, it's just uh, they were affiliated to the Crown. But uh, we were we regarded ourselves as Irish on the island of Ireland. And, of, you know, he had come back to a whole new changed political landscape. Um, while he was on the front, uh, you had the, the, the GPO, the Raisin, of uh, Easter 1916 on, on public opinion across the whole island had transformed. So by the time he had come home, um, it was a whole new climate. So my mum used to say to him, why did you join the British Army? And he says, well, initially I joined up to feed my children. Mm. You know, that's, that was one of the reasons, uh, you know, but uh, 
he was still proud of his service, like, but he didn't talk much about it. And eventually, anyway, um, around about, we, we were always taught, you know, about have faith in country, have faith uh, in your religion, etc. And go to mass, go to Holy Communion, um, and try to help others, and all those things that we that was all part of our whole upbringing. And but I did notice that uh, at that time there was a lot of sectarianism, and the whole area was surrounded. You're talking about three thousand five hundred Catholics or nationalists living in that enclave, totally surrounded by like thirty to forty thousand and more Protestants, and. Uh, they, they, they were okay, you know, until the 12th of July came. Uh, my mum used to go up Newton Arch Road and she would, she would have talked to the, you know, the, the different, you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick makers, I say. And they would have been all friendly with her throughout the year. But on the 12th of July in that whole month, they just basically ignored her. There was a venom there, a sectarian venom, which was there uh, against us. Uh, we were sort of guests uh, in our own country. That's how the... The, the, the Protestants and Unionists uh, thought of us. And um, so we always kept our heads down. And I used to wonder why I was always getting chased. And when I went to Victoria Park, it was getting chased and they were always shouting Finians. So I asked my mum what's a Finian and she basically said, they're, they're regarded as Catholics, we're Finians, Catholics. And I thought, I said, I thought we were all the one people, you know, we're all together, like in general, community. And because it was, it was only like, yep. Mm. and then you know so uh she basically we didn't really go into it and she didn't and, and and still any hatred on us anyway but it was difficult living over there uh because we as i say we were surrounded and uh but uh my father he died in 1967 second of june and i died of a brain hemorrhage and uh i was left to look after the house uh there was myself uh my mom left and then brothers sean and michael they were twins and my sister on she was older than me but it was at that time it was left to the the man of the house so i became the man of the house uh that was old it was an old style um irish thing about you know the, the not the not the female but the the oldest male becomes the the man of the house so i became the man of the house and i was only like 10 you know so i took it upon myself to look after the house Moment, Could I just ask um, at this point, Seamus, you meant, I think um, um, you mentioned that while, you know, neither of your parents explicitly identified um, as, as, as Republicans, um, there, there was still um, a link to involvement in the Republican movement um, through, through your uncle. Um, I think you, you mentioned. So um, in terms of your, your parents' influence on you, how would they view the politics um, of, of republicanism? Um, and, you know, uh, uh, in terms of how would it have been discussed in, in your household? Um, and then also maybe you could, uh, that could lead us on to you talking about um, the, the moment which you describe quite vividly in the book. It's a very key, important moment in the, in the history of republicanism and the provisionals in particular, when you actually discover that your, your uncle is involved. Yeah. Um, well, that, that, that person there is Johnny George. We were related to the Georges. They were a big family in, in that area. Um, and we were related through marriage. And uh, I think it was on my father's side. Uh, so after my father died, uh, you know, well, I remember the first, very, very first inklings of republicanism uh, that I sort of um, ascertained was when he used to bring around to my Uncle Johnny's in Chemical Street, and there was this painting on the wall. It was a Belle Nabla, August 1922 ambush of Michael Collins. Mm. And I, I remember looking at that 
and then they were talking away and he had this painting and uh on the wall and i remember saying to my mom my dad what is that he says i'll i'll tell you when you're older but then them two my father and my uncle johnny were talking about republicanism because my uncle johnny he was he had been in the 40s campaign mm. he was the ira and uh he had been in the 40s campaign and him and my father were very close and i think that's where i got the first signs that um i'm actually irish mm. um you have to remember um we were occupied and you know you had special powers acts uh that you know you weren't even allowed to fly the the, the national flag that was regarded as a breach of the peace you mm. could go to jail for that and you weren't allowed to speak gaelic and you weren't allowed to fly the flag you weren't they had the jackboot on our people so you're talking 400,000 and, and in 1921 when the when the island was partitioned you had 400,000 catholics nationalists uh cut off i was one of them 400,000 against a million Protestants in the north and that was set up by the, the Lloyd George government uh, as a Protestant government for Protestant people and you know Lord uh, James Craig the first Prime Minister actually said that he says this, mm. this is a Protestant government for Protestant people mm. so we weren't welcome um, we were basically told if you don't like it well go south to the Free State or the Republic whatever you want to call it the Free State actually didn't come into effect until about 1948 or 49. So it was known as the Free State. So you had a choice, stay there under the jackboot or head south. So we weren't heading south, we wanted to stay. It was our country, so, you know, there were area. But like the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians don't want to leave. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They didn't want to leave, they were forced out. So um, so that, that was never going to be an option, going south. So we had 400,000 cut off, we were one of them. And uh, as a result of that, you had the Special Powers Act and all sorts of draconian measures used against us to keep us down. And you felt it. Um, you know, my dad was one of the token Catholics who worked in the shipyard. He was a brass molder and then he was paid off. And um, so, um, you know, you couldn't join the police. My father tried that and they turned him down and said he had poor eyesight. And when he had perfect eyesight, you know, and that's why he became a bit hard bitten. So it wasn't so much an ideological thing, Republicanism. It was sort of uh, pragmatic in the fact that these people don't like you, not for being Republicans, for just being Catholics or the seniors, um, troublemakers. And uh, so uh, you, were, you were forced to, at that time, not make decisions, but you were forced to uh, maybe analyze what the hell's going on here. And at least by understanding it, then the, our people at that time took the option to keep the head down. And as Addy McIntyre, one of the old nationalists, politicians said, well, half a loaf is better than none. Just keep the head down and carry on. Mm-hmm. That was my father's generation. My generation, which came later in the 70s, we were the fighting generation. We had said, I don't think so. No, mm-hmm. we've had enough. So that was a different generation, my generation. But my father's generation and then his father's generation were accepted, accepted the status quo. But eventually, anyway, um, uh, it was through my uncle Johnny. He had basically been speaking to my dad. And my dad had actually started teaching me that we're Irish and we're actually living on the island of Ireland. The island was partitioned. You know, he was telling me in simple terms. And uh, we're Irish and we should be proud of we're Irish. And uh, my aunt Fiona, my mom's sister, used to say... Um, He's he's influenced and shameless. Your dad's and you know because uh, they they were of the, the of the opinion 
um, keep the head down and carry on regardless. And mm. we're all British citizens and we have to accept it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and in, ter- in terms of the, um, uh, you mentioned your, your uncle there. Um, yeah. So he's, I mean, he, he's involved, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's, he's, he's involved in... Um, in the events of the uh, the defence of um, sometimes known as the defence of St Matthews or the Battle of St Matthews, um, which obviously is um, the newly formed Provisional IRA at that time's uh, first sort of major action of, of the Troubles um, under the leadership of the uh, of uh, the um, extremely well regarded um, uh, community figure Billy McKee. Um, could you sort of describe the um, what what it was like to uh, the impact of the defence of St Matthews, its impact on the nationalist population in your area? And I guess what it meant to you, you know, sort of growing up as a young person witnessing th- those events, especially with that sort of familial involvement as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, my father had died in 1967. My uncle Johnny sort of taken over as a surrogate father. He was keeping an eye on us. He only, we live in Laurie Street and he only lived five minutes away in Chemical Street in St. Matthews. So he was always calling around making sure we were OK because my mum was left in abject poverty. I mean, we're talking poverty here, talking about mm. a tin bath out the back. And we're talking about it on a Friday night. Um, we get washed, the tin baths left, taken off the wall and put into the living room and hot water's poured in. And then I get washed, Sean gets washed, Michael gets washed, and then the dog gets washed, Bimbo, the throw him in, mm-hmm. you know. So <laughs> it's uh she's just scraping by. And um, but we're getting handouts and we're also getting help from uh, my father's business partner, he was actually a Protestant. He ran a furniture company called Ernie Burns, and he would—he was pretty sound. He came—he after my father died, he was coming around helping my mum out. And uh, then we had the Georges, and uh, we had Johnny, but then his son uh, Jimmy. It was him that actually formed, and this is a little, no, little lesser-known fact. Um, he formed the Citizens Defence Committee, the CDC, mm. in St Matthews around 1970, and you know the British had arrived uh, as peacekeepers so-called peacekeepers in August 69, and they actually came into our area and people were giving them tea, buns, and um, we're all glad to see them. Well, I wasn't, but my mum was and everybody else in the area, you know, um, because we had no faith in the RUC and uh, we had no faith in the B-Specials, we had no faith in, uh, in, in, the Ulster, in the Unionist government and we knew what they, were, they had been up to. And uh, so we thought the British were going to come in as UN peacekeeping force, but that happened in August 69, but everything changed the following year, and that was on the 27th of June, 1970, and that's what you're referring to as the Battle of St. Matthews, and I was there, and um, my, Sean, my brother, he had, he came in, how this started was, I think it was a Saturday, and Sean came in and said to my mum, mum, there's, there's, there's men moving boxes into the, a bar across the, the, the Newton Orange Road facing St. Matthews, and my mum said, boxes? What? He says, mum, they're carrying boxes in, and um, I, I think Sean says, I think there's guns in them. So um, my mum panicked, and she eventually said, right, that there was tension in this area, and we lived directly behind that church, and uh, St. Matthews, so we could hear everything going on that road. They were all gathering, and they were shouting and ball, and uh, there was, they, were shouting, <laughs> they were shouting things like, we're going to fucking rape them women of yours. And uh, we're going to burn that fucking church down. I mean, we can, I can hear everything. Mm. And uh, you, there was like over a thousand of them on that road. Unionists, loyalists, whatever you want to call them. And uh, 
they were burning vehicles, were started hijacking. And the Brits were there. Um, I'm not sure what the regiment was, it might have been the Anglican regiment, but they were thinly spread on the ground. And then there was trouble elsewhere in the city later. So they pulled out, which is like unbelievable. What the hell? You are here at the tent that, that defend us. And because uh, we have no faith in that RUC. So what we were left with was they redeployed to the West East Belfast, that enclave of 3,500 Catholics were surrounded and now they were going to be attacked uh, by this huge mob and the RUC were going to help them because they were part of them. Mm. And uh, so we heard all that carrying on going on that afternoon, that Saturday. I think it was a Saturday, I'm not sure, but it was the 27th. And um, she, she told me to go around and get Johnny, Noggle Johnny. So I went around and I got Noggle Johnny out of Chemical Street, but they were already organising. They were in the street, lined up. They were already up ahead of the posse. Mm -hmm. And um, they, I seen them all standing with one had a German Smizer and a uh, few had handguns. I seen one with a hunting rifle. And I went over and said to Mum's looking at you. He went around and I put me near the kitchen door and they were having a talk in the kitchen. She was panicking, my mum. says, what's happening? Are they gonna come in here? Are they gonna burn us? Because then British were pulled out. Yeah. He says that the British have pulled, that the army have pulled out and um, we're watching the front of the road and there's, there's a lot of them there. There's a, there's a couple of thousand of them are like, mm. and um, they're going to try and come into the area. But we're going to stop them, Kathleen. And she says, what are you going to stop them with? He says, with guns. That's actually unheard of because this is the very start of the troubles. Mm. And you had this thing painted on the walls in the lower falls, IRA, I ran away. They were regarded as cowardly. The IRA and they hadn't they were they weren't rated and um the Brits thought we're gonna punish these if they even lift their head above the parapet and uh so um he said we've guns in and we're gonna use them and uh so put those just keep the kids in and uh because we're gonna be trouble tonight and uh so what had happened was Billy McKee had come over. He was from the Belfast Brigade of the newly fledged Provisional IRA. They had actually split in December 69, a few months earlier, from the Cattle Golding's official IRA. And they basically, Cattle Golding and the official IRA, they were heading down a road of, in the, in the light of Operation Harvest, which was the 56 63 campaign previous, which had failed. The border campaign. It, it, mm. Pardon? The border campaign. Yeah, the border campaign, it had ended in 63. So they were moving in a different direction. They were giving guns to the Free Wales Army and uh, were basically uh, defenseless. So they were leaving their own people defenseless. But there again, you know, you need to have a crystal ball here because nobody's seen this coming. But like Brexit, nobody's seen it coming in 2016. So I'm trying to get you sort of back into that, you know, into that that June, this, this, this month, only it's 1970. So if mm. we go back in time, everyone's panicking in our house. And um, the area is panicking, and the British, the Brits have pulled out, and there's a big crowd outside that chapel, and they're shouting, and they're going to burn us out, and we don't, we don't trust, we don't know who the provisional IRA is, mm. and um, so you're left to your own devices basically. Mm. And uh, my father was dead; I was too young, and um, so that's when my, John, my uncle Johnny says we're going to sort it out. And that night. Um, what had happened was Billy McKay had come over with the provisional IRA unit and he joined up with Johnny's son. Johnny George's son was called Jimmy. And Jimmy had a brother called Bobby. So they were all part of the family. 
and cousins or you know we were we all knew each other but jimmy had actually brought in guns from england and tires he was a tire dealer oh okay had, so that was how he got the access to that okay right so he was bringing guns in through getting tires the guns were hidden in the tires and he had he had brought them in he wasn't ira jimmy george mm. was not the ira but he was a community leader like my dad and if my dad had been alive my dad would have been the same he would have been defending that chapel you know and um that area and um, but jimmy george who him and my dad were good friends jimmy organized the citizens defense committee or the cdc and uh, he had got guns smuggled in in tires and then Billy McKay had sent, he had one over, carried a recon of the area and then decided this is going to, this is bad. This area is going to be invaded here. So he sent over for uh, material and men from West Belfast and they arrived. And as I say, there was a small number in the CDC, probably about 10 or 11 of them. And um, Johnny George was one of them and he was right on like, but he was there with his son, Jimmy and um, Dennis Thompson, a German smasher and a couple of rifles, etc. And then McKay came over with his men. So they joined up. It was a joint up that night mm. for the first time. And the CDC don't really get a mention. No. You know, but they don't. No. But it was actually a joint operation. So uh, 11 o'clock comes. And my mum tells us all to go to bed. So we're all in the back room. And you get see out onto the front of the road at the side of the church. Well, it was uh, there was the primary school, which we went to, and then beyond that, the church. And in the, the road you weren't that far away like you could hear everything and then 11 o'clock they, they started they invaded they came across my uncle johnny told my mum he gave a run and commentary later and i heard it and she says what happened so he says they they stormed the chapel and in graphic detail he explained they came across and says let's rape them bastards them women and let's fucking burn that area down that church has been there for too long they were going to burn the church, burn the school behind us, the Samathy's primary, and then burn our street out, Laurie Street. It was going to be like a North Bombay Street. So they all charged across the road and they were climbing on the railings. They're still there. The railings are still there. And they were climbing on the railings. And Johnny says, that's as far as they got. They opened fire with a Thompson and raked, raked to the right and then raked back up on the left. And some of them fell into the guard, into the grounds of the church. Some of them fell back out onto the road, and some of them were skewered on the rails. Rails, mm. and they went into deep shock. They started shouting, "Those Fenians have fucking guns!" They were shocked. How dare they? They have guns in there. How dare they? So they went on a rampage. They started. They were already firing anyway. They started with gun battle, and that started at eleven. And I heard it for the first time. Jesus was terrifying. I mean, in terms of that, um, that's an event which has obviously, um, you know, gone down in in, in Republican folklore um, in in many ways. But if we could move now from sort of the, the, that event, which very much you you know you could suggest signals the uh, the, the start of the troubles, um, you know, if we could move on now to your decision to uh, to join um, the provisionals and become involved in the armed struggle. At what point did he decide that you needed to become an active participant? And if you could also maybe describe the process of how, you know, a young lad, because you're still a teenager, you know, you describe yourself mm -hmm. as a child soldier. How does a young lad in the Belfast of the, of the 1970s, you know, go about putting himself forward and, and joining the IRA? Because you joined the FINA at first, which is the, the youth wing of the movement. So, you know, maybe you could uh, yeah. uh, talk about that a little bit. So after the Battle of St. Matthews, we moved uh, my cousin and the relatives came over 
and um, says we can get you out of here. And my mum didn't like over there anyway. We were surrounded and it was so sectarian, so bitter. So she said yes. And we were all, all our material was taken out of 12 Laurie Street. And we were sent to the Glen Road refugee huts on the Glen Road. And that's where we were. And uh, that, that was the following, that was in uh, March 1971. And then August came, uh, which was internment and all hell broke loose. And she said to herself, what was the point of me bringing you out of there? I thought I was, I was taking you away from the trouble. We've got you, I've taken you back into it. The whole of Belfast had exploded by then. It's just, it was surreal. It was hard to explain. Everything was turned upside down and uh, families were leaving and going to England. And some of them were leaving to go to Australia. My mom was offered to go to Australia and uh, she nearly got away. We, I could have been in Australia now, only um, they wouldn't accept her. The, the Australian uh, foreign office wouldn't accept her because she, she was a woman on her own with four children. She hadn't got a trade, she hadn't got a, a profession and her husband was dead. So the, she, she didn't, they turned down the application and that was around 1971. So when internment came, um, everything, all hell broke loose the following year, January 72 was Bloody Sunday. That had a profound impact. So two most, probably the major ones for me personally was the Battle of St. Matthews ingrained in my psyche was uh, Battle of St. Matthews, 27th of June, 1970. And then uh, January 1972, the bloody, bloody Sunday in Derry. When we seen that, um, the whole community were en enraged at that. And uh, when I seen Evan Cooper on the TV, he says, now I want to address the British government. He says, you know what you've done, don't you? He says, um, um, you, you've given the IRA its greatest victory. And... Um, he says, you've also destroyed the civil rights movement. He says, tonight all over this city and beyond, young men, some of them mere boys, are lining up to join the IRA, and you will reap a whirlwind. And I said to myself, he's talking, to, he's talking about me. And that was probably my, my, my first decision to join them. And I had to do something. Was either sit in the fence and do nothing, or just keep the head down and be a moderate forever and be spineless. And I've seen a lot of spineless people in my life since so i didn't want to be that and uh, we were always taught stand up and help others and um, sometimes that's to your own detriment and sometimes you have to do a wee bit of self-sacrificing so but that's what we were we were brought up like that maybe modern families aren't brought up like that i don't know but that was that was then and uh we we were felt we we so what you do on that, our community you do it in us you do it in all of us so when then people were gunned down by the parachute regiment from Derry, we felt every bullet hit us um, as fourteen people died, and uh, it wasn't a case so they're 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 not really our people yes they are they are our people, and um, we felt we had in Belfast that we felt that um, we had that that bond with them as well that that, that injustice that they were fighting for to remove. Um, they'd pay a heavy price for it. So, yeah. So at that point, I knew then that the, the peaceful methods, the democratic initiative was not going to work. I knew that. Blame right? on the Galvin horse, knew that. And, um, but of course, you had the moderates, even within our own people, but you have them too. You always had, you, you always have moderates. You had them in, for example, I studied military history. Uh, you had it in uh, May 1940 when the German army came into Paris. Um, Marshal Patton and you know, the great leaders of France were saying collaboration is the way forward. Collaborate with the German army, collaborate with the Third Reich, collaborate with Hitler. It's the patriotic thing to do. And you say, really? 
collaboration is the patriotic. That's what they were saying. It was patriotic to do that. And uh, so there's a right and then there's a wrong. And if you can't use your moral compass, then I can't help you, you know? So, um, but my moral compass told me um, they will reap a whirlwind for what they've done. And uh, it, uh, it wasn't, I wasn't really driven by revenge. Um, I was driven about a sense of injustice and about right and wrong. I've always been like that. I was always, I'm always of the opinion, we can right this wrong. How do we go about writing this wrong? Not, oh, I feel this rage and this neg all these negative and corrosive feelings. I, I've never really, that's, that's not in my DNA. So my attitude was, I'm gonna help my own people get off their knees and I'm gonna get them their civil rights uh, because the civil rights movement's finished and we're gonna to have to use uh, different methods. And it'll, it, I've learned anyway through history, you know, the 26 counties were, were freed, not by a democratic decision. It was through a war from January 1919 to July 1921. It was a war, bloody war. But they got the 26 counties free. And I felt this is the only way we were going to get the six counties free. Uh, it's through a war. And so I joined FINA in May 19. I was shot a machine gun fired by undercover soldiers. And... Uh, and that, that, that was, was that not as, as your first day as a, as a volunteer as yeah. well? But yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was my first day in the film. And, and, and the rest of the guys in the film unit, they were saying, they, they were going around saying, hole in the stomach or hole in the belly, they were calling me. And they were going, you still stand at this, you know? But it didn't deter me. And, uh, uh, I was, I was with Nafane Aaron and until I was 18 and then joined the provisional IRA. So once I took that oath of allegiance when I was 15, uh, I became a child soldier at 15 and I swore the allegiance to the Irish Republic and I have remained faithful to that oath to this day. I've remained faithful to the, the, that oath that I've given. I haven't betrayed it. I haven't betrayed my family. I haven't betrayed my comrades and I haven't betrayed my, my, my country. And uh, I've always, I've given it my best shot. And I've given, you know, uh, I've tried to um, to remain faithful to the to the Irish Republic that a lot of their men and women would eventually die for in the coming years from May 72 onwards. And, um, but uh, when I was 18, uh, I, got, uh, I joined the Provisional IRA and it was known as uh, as the Army and, or Oblina Heron. So it's not actually called the IRA. Um, uh, and, and they call it the army. They would refer to the the, the army shall be known as Oglinaran. That's the first words in the Green Book of the army's constitution, the IRA's constitution. The army shall be known as Oglinaran, Volunteers of Ireland. So we were known as Oglinaran, and or, or else the army. And um, but joined the army at eighteen. Um, I worked my way through the ranks. Uh, became a section leader, and. Uh, uh, in my section was Joe McDonnell. He died in hunger strike. Mm. He was in my section. And then eventually I became a officer commanding uh, provisional IRA unit of 14 men and four women. And they were part of a uh, first battalion uh, of the Belfast Brigade. So you had the brigade and you had the first, uh, you had three battalions in the Belfast Brigade. You had the first, second and third. We were the first Battalion, and then uh, from the battalion, you had five five companies in the first battalion, right? So it was all well structured, 
um, you know, it, it was well organized, well structured, and uh, and you had a high caliber of, of troop there. Can you describe to us um, uh, uh, the circumstances of your uh, capture, the charges that landed you in prison, and what it was like to actually enter the uh, the, the prison system for the first time? Right. Um, well, I was, I was OCFF company, uh, 1st Battalion, Belfast Brigade, Oglin Huron, and that was pressure. Um, looking after that, you know, trying to, uh, at that particular time, you're talking about 76 and this 77 period, and there was a lot of operations going on, and you they're always they're, you're always under pressure, pressure from the army, pressure from your mother. Um, for example, you know you'd wake up three o'clock in the morning and wouldn't be the Brits on your chest; it would be your mother, um, mother with her knee in my chest. And then when I opened my eyes, it was quite horrific to see her with her curling, curling pins in, and her teeth gritted, and shout and just basically whispering. Her Majesty's forces are at the door, and it's all your fault. <laughs> so you had to push my ma off my chest, and then she would go down, open the door, and then they would all pile in, the soldiers, etc., and then search the house. And basically, I would have done three days in Castlereagh. And then that was pressure, and then having to sort of live this dual life, and then working at the same time, holding down a job, trying to keep the family together. And... Um, so uh, there were so many balls in there, yet you were trying to bounce. But eventually, anyway, um, I was caught on active service on the 20th of January, 1977. And uh, it was a UDR soldier, and uh, he didn't show up. The RUC showed up, and we rammed the checkpoint, eventually crashed into the chapel on the Andersonstown Road, St. Agnes's. And then uh, I was taken to Castlereagh. Well, I was taken to the Murray Station first, and then from there to Castlereagh, done five days in Castlereagh. And... Uh, we were told, don't be worrying, if you get caught red-handed in active service, they don't they don't touch you, they don't bother you, they'll let you set it out for three to five days. But no, they didn't. They bit the, bit the crap out of me. And uh, they were slapping me, kicking me. And uh, it was pretty bad. And uh, But eventually, anyway, after five days of interrogation in Castle Ray, I was charged with uh, uh, attempted murder and possession of firearms, etc. And uh, I was sent to the, the crumb from an jail, and it was in Seawing for a while um, from January, or sorry, start of February, uh, 77 to June, uh, 77. Um, was taken up to the Romance Centre up in Long Cash, H1. And uh, I was in H1 in June, 77, from June to uh, early October, 77. We, I was in Long Cash, but it was only in Romance and the H, H Block 1. It wasn't sentenced. And uh, there, there in that particular block was Bobby Sands. And that's when I first met him in June 77. He was a wing OC. And uh, Thomas McElwee, Kevin Lynch, they all died on the hunger strike. So we were all in the same wing. And uh, got sentenced. Uh, went up for trial. I refused to recognize the court. And uh, on the 5th of October 77, I was sentenced to 14 years for the, the aforementioned charges. Taken from there. Uh, Crumman Road Courthouse, then to the Long Cash, and taken to H Block 5. And I refused to wear the, the uniform and was sentenced. I was taken to uh, A Wing, H5, and put in there. And it was pretty brutal because we weren't sure what was happening. There was no prior analysis. 
given. We were just simply told, we're not sure what's going on up there. There's nobody taking visits, so there's no communication with the outside world. But what you do is you just refuse to wear the uniform and we'll take it from there. So it was very much ad hoc. Would, would, would you have had any indication from um, from any of the um, any of the communications that might have been smuggled out of the uh, of the prisons that were appearing in, say, um, you know, Republican newspapers, things like that, or were filtering down through local um, IRA units or, or branches of Sinn Féin about what conditions w- were like? Or, or was it quite a shock for you? Uh, it was a shock. In the crumb, we were just simply told we're not really sure what's going on up there. Um it was a protest. Uh, you just were you freeze to wear a uniform, and uh, basically that's it. So we were just being told from the OC in the wing um, when you go up there, just refuse to wear the uniform. Mm-hmm. And okay, so that that when we refused to wear the uniform, but that meant was you were getting locked in the, your cell twenty four hours a day, no fresh air, and uh, no exercise, um, and then you were basically put on rations, uh, just enough to keep you alive. So you were starving all the time and you weren't getting out at all, which I thought was pretty draconian from the from the word go. Plus you'd, they'd taken all our clothes off us, including underwear, and then you were naked in a cell with the blanket. And that was the blanket protest. It had already started the year the year previous on September the 14th, 76 by Kieran Nugent. And um, so we were coming in 11 months later. By the end, there was 90 men in his five. And, uh, but again, there was nobody taking visits. So there was no real communications uh, network. And it was only until Brent Hughes arrived and he arrived at the end of January, mm. 78. And uh, he came, He actually ended up in our wing, in A-wing H5. And, and fortunately for me, he was in the cell next to me. And eventually it was him who put the strategy together. And he took over command um, of the blanket man. And uh, he was uh, the officer commanding the blanket man and officer commanding the H-blocks from uh, that period of uh, February, March 1978 right through all of 78, all of 79, all of most of 1980, right up until the 27th of October when he stood down to hand over command to his, his PRO or his press release officer, Bobby Sons. Mm. So that, that's the timeline and that's putting history in perspective. Mm. And, uh, you know, because people think uh, Bobby Sands was our officer commanding all of those years. He wasn't. It was Brenton Cuse. You know, so I, I'm a firm believer. I study military history. I love history. I'm an avid reader of history. And I always like to get to the facts. You know, we were told in school that the British and the Americans, for example, won the Second World War. And so we were told they won the war. And I used to say to my teacher, Mr. Carey, explain hi. He says, well, we had the Battle of the Bulge, December 44. We have the Battle of Britain, uh, August, September 1940. We had the Battle of El Alamein in North Africa, 1942. And we had D-Day Operation Overlord, June the 6th, 1944. We had the Battles of Berlin in Western Europe. So that's how we won the war. But it wasn't years later that I actually found that the German army wasn't defeated by the British and the Americans. They were defeated by the Red Army in the East. The Third Reich was defeated in the East, not the West. And I, I never heard of battles like Battles of, Kur- of Gursk, July 43, or the Battles of Kharkov, and it was only years later. So I always like, now I know that that was flawed. Now I know that the, the Red Army defeated, in general, they defeated the, the Wehrmacht, and uh, the British and the Americans uh, were playing second fiddle to that. So 
Um, so when people say oh, Bobby Sands was the OC, no, hold on, it was Brenton Hughes. So well, let's let's let let's let's talk about that a little bit because obviously yeah. we, we've mentioned Brendan Hughes there, um, and um, at the, you know uh, at, at this point we're sort of we're, we're moving towards you know um, uh, the, everyone thinks about the 1981 hunger strike as being yeah. um, you know the uh, as, as as being the the uh, the ultimate expression of the prison struggle, but obviously there's a, there's a history of resistance before that, as you've just mentioned, the blanket protest. We've got the no wash protest, the dirty protest, yeah. uh, and of course the hunger strike that uh, Brendan Hughes himself leads. I think that's why he steps down as. OC um, yes. um, and hands it over to Bobby Sands in, in 1980. So Hughes is obviously, um, you know, one of the major figures, I, I would say, and, and one of the major influences mil- militarily and politically from the Republican perspective during the Troubles. That's um, for those that um, uh, um, I think they've heard the name before. Brandon Hughes often referred to by his nickname, which was the Dark. Uh, that was due to his um, olive skin and his dark hair. He was a hugely respected um, uh, officer commander of the Belfast Brigade of the IRA and also instrumental in terms of his contributions to Republican education and political debate. He was um, part of the cluster around the famous Cage 11 in Long Cash prior to the establishment of the H Blocks. Um, and, you know, he's known outside, even by the British Army, that they acknowledge this as a pretty fearless um, 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 operator, you know. So, how did his arrival in the block sort of change things uh, in terms of what influence he, he had immediately? Well, without him, um, things wouldn't have ended up the way they did. Um, for example, we were basically rudderless and we were leaderless. And I can say that quite honestly. Um, we had a black OC of, of, of H5, but when he came in, um, he had a presence about him. He had a gravitas um, and he, he was also a great, he was a strategist. And what the blanket men needed was a leader, a proper leader, a soldier, because we seen ourselves as soldiers um, fighting a war. And even within the prison, we knew that there was, well, it was only up until up until July 1978. We weren't really sure what was happening. We thought it was jail struggle, prison struggle with the governor. But it was Brenton Cuse who articulated and who formulated the policy and explained to us and instilled on us that fighting spirit, that spirit, the core. And that was in July 78. So he tells us, he explains in 78 July that this is uh, part of an overall strategy. It's quite unique in military history um, that the prison turns into a battlefield because, you know, basically the, 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 the prison has always been a place for the reserve where the men are sent into the rear from the front line. They set it out until the war ends. And he explained in July 78 to us. And that was a big, a big thing. That was a big enlightening process for me. Um, when he, he said, for example, uh, and this, uh, what's happening here is a three-pronged military strategy. It's not a local jail dispute. Um, if it was, it would tell you, but unfortunately, it's not. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's a three-pronged policy that the Brits have formulated. Uh, Austerization, uh, criminalization, normalization. <coughs> you see, Austerization basically explained later in 1985 when he started taking seminars. When we got political status, it was a dark, it was explaining it in more detail. Not so much in July 78. He was just telling us for the first time, this is exactly what's happening, lads. This is where you are in history. And But he was, he was saying that ulcerization that was, uh, in 1975 was formulated by the British then. It was based on Vietnamization uh, from 1970, where the Americans were um, deciding after the Tet Offensive in July or in January 68. Um, they would more, move more into a supportive role and send the indigenous forces into the front line, let them take the casualties. And the, the Americans, through Vietnamization, were going into a more supportive role, which meant no less body bags came back to America. Um, less, less body bags came back to, to the American families and more let the South Vietnamese carry the brunt. 
Australization, the British thought this is a good idea, so we'll call this Australization. And the British Army goes in their supportive role, and the Indigenous Forces, which would be the RUC, RUC Reserve, UDR, these are the Indigenous Forces, push the natives into the front line, let them take, let them carry the con, and that's Australization. Normalization was built in, you know, restaurants, leisure centres, appear, give a, give a semblance of order and normality, and not a war situation or a war zone, but, you know, turn the Turn the turn the place into sort of a a normal a normal, uh, a, a normal uh, function of society, and then criminalisation was the main one. That was to be the main plank to break the back of the IRA. They felt that the, the, their soft underbelly would be the prisoners. Um, you break the prisoners, uh, you break their morale. You turn the place into a knacker's yard, long cash, uh, through criminalisation, and. Then you break their, their you demoralize their army on the outside and scatter their support base, and that was generally I thought it was a brilliant strategy, you know. Um, but basically, what it meant was the British war machine, which had been fighting us on the outside, had now entered the camp for the first time. They had entered the camp um, in 1976, and they were now concentrating on breaking the the prisoners. They felt um, within three or four weeks, six weeks at the max, they'll have them broke. They didn't realize who they were dealing with. They didn't realize that we were actually committed combat soldiers. And um, yes, they were going to break some of us out of 839 Republican prisoners, where there was 340 of us hardcore left. We There was a rump of hardcore known as the 300 Spartans, and we were going to hold that. We were going to hold the line like the Greeks at Thermopylae in 480 BC. We were going to save the IRA from itself. We were going to save our own people, and um, but it, it, that that's why it's so important that blanket protest, which eventually leads to the hunger strike, which is a you know. But the, the people seem to concentrate on the, the hunger strike, the hunger strike, the hunger strike. But you have to look at the con you have to put it in context. It was a five year struggle, which ended in a hunger strike. But you know, so it's very important that that's explained in, in historical terms because. We thought at the time this will just end up in a footnote in Irish history. We didn't realize that this would actually be a pivotal moment or a watershed moment in the Anglo-Irish conflict. We actually didn't realize that. It has turned out like that, but we didn't realize it then. But um, so people are, even today, are, are very much interested in it. So it, uh, if people are, are prepared to listen and are prepared to learn, I'm prepared to educate them. And because I was there. And so he explained in July 78, that this is a, a very important struggle. We have to hold the line and, you know, uh, we, we can win this battle and it's possible if we win this battle against criminalization, they might not have any another policy to replace it. We could actually break their will to win. And that's what it was all about, the will to win. And we had to have a stronger will than them. We had to endure what they inflicted upon us for longer. And uh, so we knew then this isn't. This is not a jail dispute. This is. This is. This is to do with the war. This is another. We're. He was basically saying, "Yes, we're going to send. You are now moving back into the front line of the war, uh, within the hate box through this present protest." So that's how important it was, and the Brits knew it too. The stakes were high on all sides on this one. We knew the Brits weren't going to give in. They were absolutely determined to break us, and we equally we are, were absolutely determined not to be broken, and that's why it lasted for so long, um, for five years. So, um, I mean that 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 probably I mean that that brings me on to something actually that I was I, I was going to mention, um, which is um, 
if we if we think about the instruments and the methods that were used by um, the, uh, the the prison officers in particular uh, to to try and break the morale of the uh, of not just the hunger strikers but prior to that during the entire struggle, I think one of the most striking things about your book for me is that you describe in quite harrowing detail the extent of the um, abuse from the prisoners received in it by the prison officers. But in particular, I think what can only really be described as a kind of systematic and institutionalized sexual abuse um, in some instances, you know, um, and in some instances that you describe, I can only really consider it to be, you know, f- forms of, um, of sexual assault and even rape, actually, that the IRA, that the volunteers are subject to in the H-blocks. Um, I, you know, I understand this is probably a very difficult thing to talk about, given how traumatic that kind of violence is, but you do write about it in the book. So yeah. I wonder if you could give listeners, um, you know, a, an idea of the extent of that kind of treatment that, that you experienced, because it feels like it was consciously and systematically used as a weapon by the prison authorities. Yeah. Well, I can describe in detail because it didn't happen in September 1978. It happened yesterday. So when I'm talking to you, I relive this. Mm. And yes, there's a price to pay. You know, sometimes you end up quite drained, emotionally drained. But I I have a, a tendency to believe that and an obligation, I feel with an obligation to explain to people um, who are interested what happened. Um, because it, it did actually end up in the deaths of 10 men and there's been a hundred have died ever since so there's 110 blanket men have died premature deaths you know so for me i feel a bit obligated because they can't speak for themselves so i'm their voice that's what i feel and i have to be as honorable to them as faithful to them as i can but september 78 for example was came down the wing and uh prison officer freddie um, he said, right, open your legs. And this is the start of this type of sexual carry on, sexual abuse. So my, my legs, I don't need blue towel on, a pair of rosary beads around my neck. He says, take the rosary beads off. Took the rosary beads off. He says, give that the officer your towel. So I give the officer my towel. He says, right, open your legs. So I opened my legs and he, he done a circle. He circled me and says, um, mouth search so open my mouth and he hit me with a uh, like a rubber torch he was looking into appearing into my mouth he says open it louder or open open it um open it more and um open it wider and i uh, looked down and he starts he hit me across the face with the torch and uh it was the aggressiveness of them there was about six of them all in blue overalls down at the ablution area but what i noticed on the right was a table sitting in the ablutions, which looked out of place. There was never a table in there. And uh, there's a table sitting in the ablution area, the washing area. And uh, he says, right, um, her search, got to through my hair. And then he says, um, finger search or hand search. And I says, you for real? He says, fucking do it. So I had to open my hands, open them wide and flick them over. And he says, right, foot search. <laughs> so I had to lift my foot up, my left foot, my right foot. To, to see had I something stuck to my foot contraband and then he says right give us a twirl and I had to do a 360 degree twirl, turn for him and then he says right I get in that table you finian fucker and spread your legs your hair <laughs> and I laughed I went <laughs> I thought he was joking I says um, oh, I read he says I'm serious and there, there were six of them there, and I'm on my own. I've no clothes on, completely naked. He says, did you not hear me? I says, 
I am not getting on top of that fucking table. He says, no, you'll get on top of the table and you'll spread your legs, you hear? I says, I'm not doing that. No, no, no. So they rushed me and um, the, 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 they carried me physically over to the table and dropped me on top of it. I dropped on top of the Formica table. It was a rectangular table. And I'm six foot, near six foot three, six foot two. And uh, my legs are dangling off the end of it. And uh, they pinned me down. One, they take an arm each. Out of the four, or there's six. One takes an arm each and one takes a leg. And they start opening my legs like a pair of scissors. But I'm trying to keep my legs closed and they're trying to open them. And the, the fifth one, he's got my head and he's smacking my face off the table. And so I turned my face to the right because I was getting smashed in my nose and he's banging my head trying to keep my head down and uh the other two have got my arms and these other two have got my legs and uh eventually the, the praise my, my, my legs open like a pair of scissors but i look over my right shoulder and uh there he comes it was an, an mo and he was hiding in the ablutions behind the wall i hadn't seen him there were six prison officers but i didn't know there was an mo he, he's a screw with a white coat. He would have helped the doctors out. There's quite a few of them, medical officers, but they were basically screw. We called them screws with white coats. They hadn't got really medical experience, but they helped the doctors out, their assistants. So he appeared, and I he wasn't expecting me to make eye contact with him, but I actually turned my head around and caught him on my right side. And I knew him, and he had known, he had known me. And he was putting on the surgical glove. And he says, Mr. Kearney, you are going to really enjoy this. And then he rammed his finger up me in us. I had to mechanically get off the table after he'd done that. And I looked at their faces and they knew they had done wrong. They knew in their eyes, they weren't comfortable with that. And I just looked at them and I looked at Freddie and I said, you're, 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 you're gonna pay for that. He says, oh, oh, are you threatening prison officers, are you? I says, you're gonna pay for that. What you just done there? You know what you done. You're gonna you're gonna pay for that. He says, "Where's your guns now, you provy bastard? Huh? You Finian fucking her, threatening us? You know what you done? You're not gonna get away with that." He says, "Why? What are you gonna do? Where's your guns now?" But I remember on the table saying to myself, and remember saying to myself, if I was even considering surrendering, I don't think I will ever ever surrender to use hell can freeze fucking over i will never wear that criminal uniform ever that's what it was that's that solidified me and then i was a wing of 45 men coming behind me and they were thinking the same got to the far side nana my cellmate came in and i was standing at the window and he came in and he looked at me and he says fuck off here's me and i just looked at him and i says no you fuck off and he says what are you looking at i says what are you looking at I, I felt like crap, and he felt like crap. And he just says, I can't believe the imposter's done that. Here's me, well, no, it is, Nana. I can't believe they've done it there. So what do you want me to do about it? He says, nobody cares about us, do they? Really? Here's me, no, no. World gets on. People just get on with their life. Get on with their shopping or get on with their mediocre, their mediocre life out there. Let them get on with it. He says, uh, it was like a, a feeling of helplessness. You know, we felt helpless. You know, we had been outraged, but with no, no recall. 
and uh he, and i said that's when i said to him i says none of we have to close ranks here if we're going to get through this then we're going to have to behave as brothers no more bitching we have to behave as brothers if we're going to get through this he says i know oh no on, on that subject of of the of you know how, how you you know overcome and, and and push through in the face of that kind of of that kind of stuff one of the things that i'm constantly amazed by whenever i read the literature about the hunger strikes and the prison struggle in general is you know the, the manner in which solidarity and comradeship was maintained uh, throughout all this in in the face of all this you know, famously the blanket men were organizing education um irish language classes entertainment um you know even when you're confined to your, your cells you develop forms of communication and ways to bypass the restrictions of the isolation um you know so um you know there's a lot of former prisoners you know people might be surprised but if you if you if, they, if you read the literature and you read and you read the, the people's testimonies they'd be surprised because even though people are enduring the uh the, the the things that you've just described a lot of you know former prisoners will say um that the solidarity and the comradeship they experienced during that time could never be matched in the outside world um so could you maybe talk a little bit about on a day-to-day basis what what kind of things if, if people don't know anything about this what kind of things were people that were enduring this treatment doing to keep morale up to keep comradeship alive well, I was one of the main ones to keep that going. I would have kept entertainment going in the wing, me personally. Um, uh, I would have been, for example, trying to think of ideas, um, stretch the imagination. I'm always, I'd be into that. And trying to keep the lads together because we then, through that type of brutality, sexual assault, we closed ranks and uh, we, we, we started realizing we were we were more than comrades comrades is pretty lightweight we were brothers and uh that was that 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 was forged it wasn't really there in 77 76 it was only by about 70 late 78 79 the harder it was becoming for us we had to depend on each other i mean the ira depended on us for holding the line but we depended on each other to get through we depended on the man to the left, the man to the right. And it, it became less about the glory of Ireland, about the flag, about ideological drives. It was about loyalty, comradeship. But it was right up my street because I was brought up with that, integrity, honour. That's when the lads found themselves. But I, I was already there with my family. I'd already, I knew all those values, all those virtues. I was aware of them. So that suited me. And I, I jailed with them. I definitely jailed. Um, I mean, uh, I, I would organize the Brown Ferry concert. Um, let's stick together. Love is a drug. I've done that quite a lot. Um, and then there was, uh, I organized the Christmas Carl in Christmas 1979, Charles Dickens, comedy version. And uh, would, 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 would these have been, because um, the people aren't aware, at different, at different periods during, during yes. the struggle in the prisons, that there were, you had the ability, um, um, I think certainly earlier on, to be able to do, to do these things in person collectively. But then the, uh, the, there was, a, when, when you were further isolated, um, the, the, there was a move to have to uh, think up sort of ingenious ways of being able to communicate these things. For example, communicating through the pipes. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 communicating through, uh, 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 you know, uh, having to shout through the, uh, the, the the small grates in your doors. Could you maybe just outline the, how that worked practically for people that don't know? Yeah, well, there was a crack in, there was a, the green steel door. There was always a crack. You could just see out the side of it. And I have to say this, Daniel, this is the pettiness of them. 
this is the pettiness of what they done. They realized this is the torture of the tortured. They realized that we were actually physically able to see out the crack of a door. And they went out of their road. This is the British government. They went out of their road to put angle iron, weld the angle iron on the side of those steel doors to make sure we didn't see out. How pathetic is that? How petty is that? And that's the British government. That's Her Majesty's government. That's Her Majesty's government from the top, from 10 Downing Street right down, that they, they were intent on breaking us, absolutely determined. I'll give them that. But they didn't realize we were also absolutely determined to get around this and to, to break them. So, but to put angle iron on, and we used to comment on that, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, they've locked us up here for years. Summer came and there was no Calvary. Autumn came, we were still there. And following spring, we were still there. And the long hot summers of 78, of 79, of 80, we're still there. And then they had us locked in there like animals. Not like, you wouldn't have done that on your dog. You wouldn't have done I would. I, could, I wouldn't have done it. It would have been more merciful if they had taken us into the yard and simply to say, enough's enough. We're going to put you to the firing squad. I would have went, happy days, get this over with. I would have took the firing squad. But they forced us. They forced us through absolute brutality and inhumanity. They forced us to say, well, by 1980, you aren't going to be sort of like your GPO guys. You're not going to, you know, kick over a GPO and die like that, die by a firing squad. That's not going to be your, your choice of, of, of death. You aren't getting hanged because we're not going to put you through the gallows. What, what, what you are going to have to do your death sentence is you're going to have to starve yourselves to death. That was the death sentence delivered to us. We were forced into that, that we knew there was somebody going to die. We knew that, but the method of death, I would have chose the gallows or firing squad. Um, but the lads to their absolute heroism and they were blanket men. People sometimes forget that too. They think, no, the blanket men were not hunger strikers. No, they were, they were all our comrades. This is at the end of a five year struggle. They said, we will die on our, we will die on hunger strike. And it started with the dark, Brenton Hughes. But, you know, the, the caliber of the men was outstanding. Mm. I mean, unbelievable. Like. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, we could we could maybe talk about that a, a bit now because you, you were close to several of the men who, who died on hunger strike during your time, time, time in the prison. Yeah. Um, if we could take the provisional participants first, so you write about your impressions of Bobby Sands, of of, of Tom McKelvey, of Kieran Doherty, known as Big Big Doc uh, to many people in particular. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your sort of comradeship and friendship w with them, and and, and sort of um, uh, how how they left a lasting mark on you? Well, Kieran Doherty, I knew him from the outset. I didn't know uh, Tom McKelvey or Bobby from the from the outside, mm -hmm. but I knew Kieran Doherty from the outside through the IRA, and. Um, he was a soldier. Uh, um, I don't. I don't know Frank Hughes. I, people say he was a fearless fighter and all, and I know that guys who knew him uh, can verify that. So I, I can only talk about my own uh, life experience and my own personal uh, judgment of these people. But so I, I knew Karen. Karen was a fine soldier, and he's he him and I seen this as a war, and we were on the front line of the war, both of us. Um, both of us were captured. Um, you know, it, 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 his commitment was like stronger than mine his commitment was stronger than mine and uh he was on the front line of the war and when he went into the prison i still was with him he was in his four with me 
and uh, he was a he fought he fought every day against them, and he was just just uh, a great guy, great soldier, like a man hunger striker. When he died, I knew once he goes on that hunger strike, he'll not be coming off it, and he died on it. From a human point of view, it's it's uh, it's difficult to come to terms with that. A lot of the lads find it difficult even to, to talk the way I would be talking about them. Yeah, of course, you know? yeah. But uh, I knew Tom McElwee. Tom was very religious, and uh, he believed in God, and um, so did I. Still do. And uh, he, when I spoke to him just before the hunger strike started, he, he just says it's the right thing to do, and he says hopefully um, it'll it'll break the back of Thatcher. And save save other people's lives by me, Dan. I'll save others. Mm. And mm. Um, Kevin Minch was of the same. I knew Kevin, and um, uh, there's not a day goes by where I don't think about. You know, mm. it's strange. You know, they say life moves on, and it's okay. You'll forget, and but that didn't happen. You know. Mm. They were so committed and uh, they didn't actually want to die. They wanted to live, but they wanted to live in a better society. And they wanted their people and the people coming behind them to have a better life and to have them get off their knees. And we, we were handed that, that uh, mantle to help our people and get them off our knees. And... Uh, we did we did our best to do that yeah you know and uh yeah. I, mean, I think anyone you know the idea of this podcast is hopefully for anyone that listens to it especially those people that listen to it on this side of the water in in britain who are um you know who are are fed a certain version um from a certain perspective um of what occurred during the troubles especially from the republican um uh, perspective um you know i think uh anyone listening um, on, on just a human level, regardless of what they might think of the provisional campaign, regardless of what they might think of the troubles overall, um, you know, they, they, they can't fail to, I think, when they listen to someone like yourself, um, understand that on a deeply human level, this was, you know, this was a, a war in which everybody suffered uh, and in which especially men like yourselves who were, you know, it, it, part of this protest and had to see your friends and your comrades, um, you know, go through these things and, and, and die. Um, you know, they can they can hear from the emotion in your voice. This is something that never leaves people, you know. Um, um, and you know, if, if, I, I just I just sincerely hope that um, anyone listening to this can uh, can can gain something of the human insight from that, which I I, I absolutely have. Um, just moving now, finally uh, towards um, you know uh, the, the the after the the hunger strike after this seismic event. Um, you know, um, you've sort of touched on it there, but. It's a bit of a jump, I suppose. We're missing out a lot of things. We've only got so much time, you know. I could talk to you for hours about this, but um, you mentioned that you know that it's in some ways, you know, life moves on, but in other ways, it's it's, it's difficult because you never forget these things. Where, where are you at now in terms of your Republican beliefs, in terms of um, your um, sort of uh, your, your political beliefs, and and your analysis of the direction of Republicanism at present? Where are you at now, now Seamus? Right. So basically, um, yeah, yeah. You know, as I say, I was studying military history. And there's in every war, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you know, you had the uh, you had this struggle. It began in January 1970, the Provisional IRA campaign, which I was involved in, and I would be proud of that. Uh, I don't shy away from it. I'm not ashamed or anything like that. 
Um, so once you go become a soldier and once you enter that, then things are going to go right and things are going to go wrong. There's going to be miscalculations. There's going to be things that will happen that, that you're not proud of, things that will happen that you are proud of. Uh, you know, and that, that applies to both sides uh, of, the, of the war, you know. Um, so it started in 1970, January 1970, the IRA launched their military campaign. And by July 1987, uh, the military campaign had ended. So I like to take things in chronological order. I like to explain to people because I need to explain to myself first, how did that turn out? What did that, you know? For example, Charles Hawkey, the, the Taoiseach said in 1981, he, he was a prophet and he didn't realize it. He was asked about the hunger strike. It had just ended on October the 3rd, 1981. And he was asked, what's your view on the hunger strike, which has ended? He says, to be honest, he says, I think it's such a seismic event. He says, I think this could actually be a watershed in the Anglo-Irish conflict. And he says, I think we're too close to it to analyze it. He says, we need to be at least 50 years away from here. That was, I was 81. He says, we need to be at least 50 years away from this, this, this year. And this what happened here. And, and then they analyze it. This, this needs to be carefully analyzed 50 years from now. And that's what we're doing now. We're analyzing it. And he was right. I don't think at the time Thatcher thought it was to be our last card. It wasn't. It was Arias card. She thought, she even told her foreign secretary, Jeffrey Howe, when in, in 85 at Chagers, she says, but Jeffrey, I thought I had defeated the, the IRA in the maze. Uh, there was their, it was their last card, and, and, and Jeffrey Howe said, no, Mom, it wasn't their last card. He says, Mom, you didn't defeat them. You just give birth. To, they only, you give birth to Sinn Féin, and, uh, and they're now a, a, a threat. So out of the Anglo-Irish Agreement, he said, we need to launch a rescue operation for the floundering uh, mother, uh, middle ground, SDLP. So the Anglo-Irish Agreement in November 85 was a rescue operation for the SDLP. Why? Because of the rise of Sinn Féin. Why the rise of Sinn Féin? Because of us, the IRA campaign, which led to the hunger strikes, bag of protest hunger strikes, and what we gained from that. And it wasn't our last card, it was our ace. And so from 1981 onwards, you had the rise of, of uh, Sinn Féin. And um, whether you like Sinn Féin or not, and some people have, everyone has views on Sinn Féin, but to be, to be perfectly honest, I would always be of the view that whoever carries critical mass, then they are the ones that need to be supported. You know, so whether you like it or not, the ones that carry critical mass during the, the, the IRA campaign, it wasn't the IRSP, it wasn't the official IRA or the Workers' Party or the Democratic Left or the SDLP. The ones that carried the, the critical mass for that campaign was the IRA, provisional IRA. They carry critical mass. Whether you like it or not, they carry critical mass. And the British, uh, like from, from Sir General Sir Mike Jackson right down, has said that there was one enemy and one enemy alone. He says it was the provisional IRA. Everyone else, we're all bit players, all bit players. And some pe the bit players don't like to hear that because they think they're, 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 they're full of their own self-importance. You know, they don't like to hear that. But there was center stage uh, for 30 odd years was the provisional IRA and the British, the British Army. And Jackson actually acknowledged that in Operation Bonner. So um, the, the, those now, the, the new vehicle isn't the IRA. It, it took the struggle as far as it could go right until July 1997. The following year was a peace accord. It was it was known as the Good Friday Agreement, and the great Peter Taylor <laughs> said it in graphic detail. 
quite. He says if he was asked what was the Good Friday all about, Good Friday Agreement all about, it was an end. It was to end a, a, a military campaign where one side were, were unable to uh, or to militarily defeat the other. So the IRA left the battlefield undefeated. The British Army left the battlefield undefeated in the short term, but in the long term, in the fullness of time, I think they have been defeated in the long term, because this is a guerrilla war. It was not a conventional war, like the First or Second World Wars. It was a guerrilla war, but like Vietnam. And as General Gap said in January 68, they lost the Tet Offensive. General Gap committed 80,000 combat troops in January 1968 to the Tet Offensive. And he lost over 40,000 combat troops and most of the material. And when General Westmoreland on the American side said, we won that, we won that battle. General Gap said, yes, you won that battle. But see, for every battle that you win, eventually you will lose this war. You might win every battle, but eventually you will lose this war because the Tet Offensive was about the will to win. And the, the Vietnamese under General Gap broke the will to win of the Americans. So I, we be I believe that the will of the British was broken in the H-blocks. We broke their will to win. And as Bobby Sands said to us at the time, prior to that second hunger strike, he says, lads, stick together. He says, stick together. He says, have a unity of purpose. If we have a unity of purpose, we can and we shall win. We will break their will to win. We will break their will to win. And we did break their will to win. From 1981 onwards, they moved from, well, from 1970 to 81, 82, Thatcher, and previous prime ministers like Ted Heath, etc., were out to break the back of the IRA. They were out for a victory, a crushing defeat, uh, as, 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 um, as mentioned by the likes of Barry Neve when he said to Thatcher, uh, uh, there is no political solution to Northern Ireland, Mrs. Thatcher. There's just a military solution. Crush the provisional IRA and you'll have peace in Ireland. And she was of that opinion. So they were pursuing this war policy. And we, we bore the brunt of it, including myself. We bore the brunt of that war policy. And it was brutal. But eventually, our will defeated them. The men in the hate blocks were the real iron. We had the iron, not Thatcher. She was the iron lady. But we were the iron men of the hate blocks. And we broke the iron lady. And through that absolute determination. And it wasn't seen at the time. You know, you could have got away with that. Oh, uh, the hunger strike ended. It looks like a Thatcher victory. Yeah, it did look at, like that at the time. And even she believed it. But in the fullness of time, we have, it has been proved that we won that. We won that battle in the H-blocks. But then out of that, we launched <coughs> uh, in 1985. We formulated a new policy. and It was to be a Tet Offensive based on the Vietnamese experience. And again, we weren't there. The Tet Offensive, which was started around April 87, wasn't about, you know, pushing armoured vehicles off the cliffs of Antrim and for a full-scale military defeat of the British. We were never of that opinion. We were always of the opinion we will break their will and we will uh, fight them to the negotiating table. And, you know, once you had a negotiating table, of course, you have to compromise if you can't have an unconditional surrender. That's just the way it is. So that, uh, that negotiating table, we bombed our way to that. And out of that came the April 1998 uh, Good Friday Agreement. That's what that was. That was between the Provisional IRA and the British. The rest are all bit players in that, you know, 
that's and Peter Taylor has more or less said that he says this was a clash of arms between the provisional era and the British and one side was unable to defeat the other and out of that you had your Good Friday Agreement hmm. that's what the Good Friday Agreement it's, it's quite simple you know but you know I know over here you have the Alliance Party claim that the SDL plea claim the Good Friday Agreement everybody claims the Good Friday Agreement but you know, when you when you cut it down I just like to know what is what what was that? It was an, it came as a result of a long war. One side was unable to defeat the other, so out of it we had a peace agreement, and it was called the Good Friday Accord. Mm-hmm. Um, where do we are? Where are we from now? The Good Friday Agreement is transitional. It's it was never permanent. It was never permanent. For the IRA, it was R and R. We needed a bit of R and R. Not that we were we were undefeated. The British realised that, but um, we needed R and R. Uh, rest and relaxation, to regroup, reorganize, recalibrate, and that's what we've done, and we've changed vehicles. So the, the struggle is now no longer a military struggle, it's a political struggle. And there is personally, not from an ideological point of view, uh, but from a pragmatic point of view, or a strategic point of view, there's no need for an armed struggle. But I'm not starting, I'm not one of these people who are going to go out and start calling everybody traitors. No, I'm not saying that. Um, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, so I'm not arguing from a, a moral or a, an ideological point of view. I'm, 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 I've always been a strategic animal, a political, a politicized animal, but a strategic animal. So from a strategic point of view, there's no need for a military struggle. Um, I think the next phase, which we're in, is a political struggle. And I think and I think we're, we, we take advantage of whatever issues are thrown our way. Should it be Bloody Friday, or sorry, Bloody Sunday, should it be um, internment, should it be the hunger strikes, blanket protest, and should it be the latest Brexit? Take advantage of it and exploit exploit the weaknesses of Brexit and, and, and the failings of the likes of the, the unionist monolithic bloc to have made a fundamental flaw, fundamental mistake. Then it's all right to exploit it, but we're talking bloodless. We're not talking about shedding blood needlessly. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a political battle, a political warfare rather than military warfare. And to be honest, I would prefer, I always would have preferred political warfare where people aren't dying, but but gains are being made. But that's that's what happened. We had to come through that and to come out the other end. And that where we are now is actually, uh, we're actually in a good strategic position. Um, and so there's, what, what I'd like to explain to people, if they're listening, is that um, what's the lessons and all that? Never give up. Never give up. The only time that you'll fail is when you give up. And yeah, we all get depressed. We all get downhearted. We all get sad. We all get disillusioned. But, you know, from, from my point of view, after going through all that, people say to me, how are you still alive? Why are you still walking? How are you still working? You know, what's the key? The key, the key is never give up. The key of the key, you have to believe in yourself, not believe in other people, because they're human and they're flawed and they're corruptible. But believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. And I am um, some guy in Ardoin, Tom Martin says to me, You're a bit of a one-man army. <laughs> he says, You are a bit of a one-man army. You're your own machine. I'm not affiliated to any political party. I'm not a member of any political party, but I have a vision and um, if I can influence people for the good, then that, that's it. I always feel of a, a mission on this earth to, uh, to do something, to accomplish something. And maybe this is my mission. 
And uh, 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 you know, out of this too, you you can actually get health on an individual level. Um, you know, you can suffer depression and things like that. But then, if you have a focus, and that's what I would say to people, Bobby once said, "Never give up, never despair, never lose hope." He was talking to us. He was talking to human beings, and that can be applied in the military sphere, and also can be applied to domestic sphere, to people's to civilian life, to ordinary people who maybe have given up on their life and maybe look at me and go, well, fuck, if he can do it, I can do it. I would just like to mention uh, this report. It's a, a report of the independent panel of inquiry into the circumstances of the H Black and Armagh prison protest, 7681. It was done in 19, it was an international panel um, made up of, um, it was made up of the late Warren Alman, former Solicitor General for Canada, alongside Richard Harvey, Barrister at Law at Garden Court Chambers in London. Richard Harvey also served on the, the, on the International War Crimes Tribunal at The Hague in the Netherlands. And also Dr. John Burton, retired family doctor and researcher in human rights law. They carried out, I, I contributed to this mm. and a lot of ex-prisoners went forward and also a, a camp governor um, and different psychiatrists and things like this. So there was a lot of re research and testimonies and files. They had to they had to get files uh, from Kew Gardens in London that they uncovered, and they were basically looking at the period that we that I've discussed with you, 1976 to 81, the blanket protest and the subsequent hunger strikes, and they were trying to make make a bit of sense out of it and to see you know how what what actually happened. So out of that, they have they have said that. The panel heard testimonies from 34 Republican blanket protesters, two loyalist prisoners, two former prison governors, medical practitioners, including a consultant psychiatrist, and lawyers, academics, politicians, and clergy. There was documentary research which focused on the background to the two and reasons for the commencement of the blanket protest between 76 and 81, focusing specifically on the impact of the British state's withdrawal of special category status from political prisoners on the 1st of March, 76. They also researched the operational legal framework, including prison rules, the prison governors and the board of visitors responses to prisoners allegations of assault and torture administered by prison guards, identification of the techniques of compliance imposed by prison guards and prisoners, adequacy of medical treatment administered to the and denied to the prisoners, and the identification of breaches of prisoners human rights law, human rights under domestic and international law. So they went through all that and they came up with this findings. It took about three or four years, but the findings came out in October 2020 in this report. And it said, um, which I think is really important because it basically validates what I'm saying mm. to you, that I, I'm not making it up because people would quite easily say to me, oh, he's a fantasist. Where's his evidence? He's just making this up. Don't listen to him, Daniel. He, he doesn't know what he's talking about and his head's cut and he needs medical help. You know, they'd be quick to do that. But so the, the international panel has found, having considered the evidence of former prisoners whose lives remain scarred by physical and psychological suffering and social disabilities, the international panel unhesitatingly concludes that the inhuman conditions in which prisoners were held were calculated to cause intense physical and mental suffering with the intention of humiliating and debasing prisoners and breaking their physical and moral resistance. Further, 
from the contextual evidence and the expert opinions sought by the panel regarding specific types of ill treatment and its impact, its conclusion is that many protesting prisoners in the H-blocks and HMP Armagh women's prison were subjected to torture. The state should now reject the proposition that the suffering of former prisoners was self-inflicted or self-imposed. It was instead the consequence of a purposeful policy implemented by the United Kingdom government, whose institutions were fully aware that their policies and practices violated international human rights standards and breached common law and statute. The panel concludes, based on all the evidence received, that the ultimate legal and moral responsibility for this torture and inhuman and degrading treatment over a protracted period rests with the Prime Minister and senior cabinet ministers who knew and approved of that treatment. So they're basically saying that the forms that you had mentioned earlier, what forms of torture, what forms of, of ill treatment, and it just lists it. It is clear from the evidence that the blanket protest was precipitated by the UK government's withdrawal of special category status from Republican prisoners and the refusal to be treated as ordinary prisoners compelled to wear prison uniform and perform prison work. The no-wise protest was a consequence of the refusal by prison guards to permit Republican prisoners to slap out. The prevailing official narrative throughout the protest was that deprivations endured by Republican prisoners was all their own fault and it was all self-inflicted. Yet the evidence shows that the protests were undertaken as a last resort to contest and reject the policy of criminalization. Former prisoners state that certain guards frequently were inebriated on duty and numerous assaults on prisoners occurred while guards were under the influence of alcohol available on site in their social clubs. Yet there is no evidence of guards facing disciplinary procedures. The food provided to prisoners was substandard and regularly contaminated by guards who added urine, spittle, maggots and cockroaches to the Republican prisoners' food. The number one that was an inhumane punishment known as being on the boards. Prisoners were held in solitary confinement on a bread and water diet, their cells stripped of beds or furniture. Prisoners were exposed to chemical toxins, and re this remains a serious concern to the panel as there is evidence of prolonged illnesses, including cancer. This issue requires further investigation. Despite freedom of information requests, the Northern Iron Office and the Northern Iron Prison Service refused information to the panel regarding chemical analysis of the toxins used in the cleaning cells and the cleaning of cells during the no-wash protest. The panel recommends further research into the use of these toxins. There is evidence that the medical staff complied and were complicit with the force washes and the head and body shaving of prisoners who resisted the regime under the pretext of treatment for lice and were aware, the medical staff were aware of the severity of beatings administered by guards the most common and persistent mental health issue, illness suffered by ex-prisoners is post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, which is profoundly debilitating for former prisoners in midlife, many of whom experience night terrors and alcohol dependency. And it goes on. Mm. This book is not a fantasy. It's called No Greater Love. I wrote it. It took me four years to write it. And um, I also contributed to the international panel. And I spoke to Warren Allman. And I had said to Warren Allman, I says, the lads can't speak for themselves, these guys, because they're dead, Warren. And there's been a hundred have died ever since, 81. So I need to speak for them. And Warren Allman said to me, we hear your dead comrades speak through you. Mm. So I give them a voice. And that's what I'm doing today.
and giving them the voice. And in terms of uh, obviously, if people are listening to this and they want uh, and they want to um, get a copy um, of the book, Seamus, and 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 and, and read it, uh, what's the best way to go about uh, getting it? Where can you buy it from? Right. So the the book um, is uh, it's distributed to two main hubs. That's Culterland uh, Bookshop on the Falls Road in Belfast, and also Little Acorns Bookshop on Foy Street in Derry. Yeah, and I'll make sure that I um I post links to uh, uh to yeah you can get your, that on the, on, yeah, on, on, on my the, Facebook on the show on my notes. Facebook yeah you can get the links yeah 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 and and I'll, I'll also make sure that I include it in um in in the show notes and the the posts that I make when I'm posting the podcast episode up as well um yeah. so people because... can get access to it. as hard as the cold rain on your face in the heat of the storm and the stories I'm hearing would shock you to believe such cruelties can go on you can starve men and take all their clothing and then beat them up till they fall you can break up the bodies, but never the spirit that goes on the blanket. But the truth must be told, so I'll tell it. It all began four years ago, when one man refused to be branded a criminal and wear prison clothes. So they threw him in naked two H-blocks And they spat out their filthy abuse And kept him awake till the cold morning came With only a blanket England, your sins aren't over The H-blocks still stand in your name and though many voices have cried out to you, it's still your shame. And if we stay silent, we're guilty, while these men lie naked and cold. In hedge blocks tonight, remember the fight. This one man's courage was steady And soon he was joined by some more Refusing criminal status These men were prisoners of war The screws tried to break them with beatings And searches no human can stand From morning till night it's a daily routine for those on the blanket. And it's hard to believe that we humans can mistreat our fellows this way. 
And he'll be out on Sundays And join in the words, let us pray Oh Jesus, it speaks to high heaven The crimes we commit in your name Can you touch the cold hearts of the tyrants who keep England, your sins aren't over The hedge blocks still stand in your name And though many voices have cried out to you It's still your shame And if we stay silent, we're guilty While these men lie naked and cold In hedge blocks tonight Remember the fight goes on the blanket. Today in Long Cash there's three hundred and eighty or more men in the cell in armor there's thirty more women on the blanket in a cold prison cell each day is a nightmare inflicted by those who've oppressed for too long in Strasbourg convicted no difference it makes those on the blanket England your sins aren't over the hedge blocks still stand in your name and though many voices have cried out to you it's still your shame and if we stay silent we're guilty while In hedge blocks tonight, remember the fight. <laughs>